Hello and welcome back to another episode of Season 3 of Behind the Desk with me, Mark Thomas, the podcast where I meet some of the leading figures in the insurance and insurtech space, bringing you insights into their views and opinions on the sector, their career journeys, as well as a deeper look into the actual person behind the desk. Today is episode four of the season and a guest I've wanted to get on the podcast for a long time now, Louise Marlin. Louise has recently left Hiscox as the COO of their UK retail business and is about to take some time out before she embarks on her next position. I've known Louise for, for a couple of years now and I've been keen to get on the podcast mainly because she doesn't have the typical background for, for your uh, your standard kind of transformation leader and COO. Louise has had masses of variety throughout her career from starting as an insurance clerk after completing her economics degree to ending up leading Hiscox's operations throughout the trials and tribulations of COVID. She's amassed a depth and breadth of experience that is really rare to see. Throughout this episode, she, she shares some brilliant insights on how she overcame these challenges, advice on how others might follow the same path and, and loads, loads more. Louise is great and, and I'm really looking forward to, to seeing what she does for her next role. But before that, let's get behind the desk with Louise Marlin. Louise, welcome to the Behind the Desk podcast. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm good. Thank you, Mark. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Um, I mean, we've just been talking uh, offline about your impending holidays, having uh, just left uh, Scott. So very jealous that um, we're recording this on the 2nd of November and it is very rainy and I think there's a big storm coming, etc. So we'll probably talk about more about that later on. But yeah, as I say, I, I mean, I will have done an intro for you before this, but I never really do it justice. So it'd be great if you could uh, tell everyone who you are and uh, and, and what you're up to and uh, Give us an intro yourself. So I'm Louise Marling. Um, I was formerly Chief Operating Officer at the UK retail arm of Hiscox up until a few days ago. And I have worked in insurance for most of my career, which is now a distressingly long time. Um, but the key, what I'm focusing on most of the moment is going on trips. So um, I'm about to go to Turkey at the weekend as the first of several planned trips, which I'm very excited about. Very jealous, yeah, yeah. It's a well-earned uh, time off. Um, so uh, we'll definitely cover that off a bit in, in in a second. But I mean, I always like to go right back to the start. So I know a bit about your background. Obviously, we've known each other for a few years, but um, but it'd be good to kind of understand how you got into the insurance sector, where your career started, and and how it all kind of panned out. Well, like I think most other people that I've met in the industry, I got into insurance by accident. I, I graduated from from Liverpool University. Um, I had intended to do a master's, so I hadn't been through all the usual milk round. I hadn't done anything about finding a job. My master's fell through and I needed to pay the rent. Um, so I did what you did in those days, which was to go down the job center. There were several jobs that didn't need any experience. And one of them was a clerk at what was Royal Insurance. So I applied for that and got it. So I ended up as a, as a temporary job as well as a clerk in the high net worth home division of Royal Insurance in Liverpool. That was my first job. Wow. We, this. we had one green screen between us and one telephone between us, which now seems unbelievable. <laughs> so what did you what did you study? What did you do at university? And what was it did you did you have a plan early on of what you were go, you were going to do? Was it is it just kind of continued studies and, and see where you go? No, uh, so I studied economics. Um, okay. and originally I wanted to join the government's economic service. So I, I wanted to be an economist. Um, that was my original plan. Um, but interestingly, as I joined insurance, I realized there was, there's a lot of the, uh, the, the thinking behind economics There's a branch of economics called game theory, which is about decision-making under uncertainty and probability and all that stuff. 
And as I started to get exposed to some of the thinking of our underwriters and how business was written, I realized that a lot of that thinking was embedded within insurance. Um, and I became quite interested in insurance as a discipline as a result of that. Yeah, amazing. So, so let's let's explore that uh, that kind of journey. You, you you've gone from an insurance clerk to a, a, a COO of a, a of a major insurance uh, business. So, t- talk us through kind of the evolution of that, and and, and I'm sure I'll, I'll kind of dip in with some some kind of questions about how how it evolved for, as as you go through it. Yeah. So I I, I moved from um, being an insurance clerk into claims. I spent some time on the front line motor claims, dealing with motor claims. That was really good because that gave me my first exposure to contracts and assessing liability and all of that good stuff. I went on to work at Norwich Union and a supervisor job came up and then a team leader job came up and I got the team leader job at Norwich Union. So that was my first manager job. Um, I had a team of 17 people. We managed the fleet motor claims for Norwich Union in the northwest of England. And that was a brilliant job for me because it's... I had quite a lot of authority in terms of the people that worked for me, but I was so far below the radar. You can get away with making all your leadership mistakes as you learn without anybody really noticing. It was a brilliant experience. And as I was doing that, I've been doing that for probably a year, 18 months. um, And an opportunity came up to go on a project in Norwich. So, so of course I said, yes. Um, And that project was looking at Norwich Union at the time. It had a direct arm, it had a broker arm um, and everywhere dealt with claims differently. So there was a small group of us brought together to figure out what should best practice be for Norwich Union claims. And I found that really interesting because it's the first time, again, I'd really thought about process design and then the outcomes that it had. Again, it's sort of our KPIs. So going around different locations, looking at what they did, understanding the processes and looking at the outcomes was the first time I'd really been exposed to that sort of thinking. And that project then got subsumed into the Norwich Union Commercial Union General Accident Integration that happened around that time that led to the formation of Aviva. Um, And I became part of that integration project. And again, that was an amazing experience because it's going down lots of different locations and looking at the plethora of working practices, of IT systems, of all the different ways there were to do something and trying to figure out what should we do as an organization? And then how can we we change to make something integrated from what is three very different companies? I think there we've seen that you kind of noticed that, that I've certainly noticed that that's, I know you're not an out and out technology leader, but that was where it kind of evolved into more change and transformation, which is which is what I think I'm right in saying is the where the bulk of your career is, is kind of spanned prior to going into the kind of a C-level position. So what what was that though? Because that that is a that's quite obviously quite a drastic change, and 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 I think you do still see people that have that type of career now, but but less so I think now. People tend to go into that job right from university, don't they? They have a going to be a BA or a project manager, or whatever, fairly early on from university, rather than coming slap bang from the the core of the business and evolving into that. So did you did you kind of actively seek out that that transition into more of a, a kind of transformation change delivery type role? Or or was that just a natural evolution of, of a kind of opportunity presented itself that you, you just jumped on? It, it was the latter. It it yeah. was just an opportunity came up. I thought, well why why not? Um I'll learn some new stuff and, and it'll be interesting. So I took it. And I'm really glad I did because, yeah, it was a very different career tra- trajectory, I think, than had I stayed being a team leader in, in, in Preston. 
so how did that evolve then? So you you went to, I get I guess I'm making the assumption that you kind of jumped into the project stuff. You 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 enjoyed that and 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 kind of lent into the, to that a bit more. Talk us through kind of how that evolved because you you spent quite a lot of time at, at, at Norwich Union Stroke Aviva. So how did that kind of evolve then? Did you did 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 one job follow another or did you did you kind of make a conscious decision that this is what you wanted to do and carve out a career in that space? No, not really. I went around the houses a little bit. I had a brief foray into uh, compliance, okay. uh, my project work. Those with long memories might remember the General Insurance Standards Council, um, which was a brief attempt by the industry to prevent being regulated by the FCA. And I was, I was asked to lead that for claims. And the brief I was given was, make us compliant, don't spend any money. And again, that was a good experience for me because I was I was working with a lot of people who'd grown up in the conduct compliance space. That was that was where they operated, and I felt they were very uncommercial. They felt I was extremely annoying. I think that was so. We had some quite interesting meetings, and it was stuff like they'd, we'd sit there and we'd debate something, and somebody would say well, we should do this, and it would add say ninety seconds to every call and every contact sensor throughout Aviva. So over time, I developed a really crude, ready reckoner. So I'd sit there and say, well, that's going to cost us N million pounds. Do we yeah. really think that's a good idea? And they'd be like, oh, well, maybe not. Round and round again to see if we could come up with a different way. So that was interesting, but I knew that wasn't where it, it, it wasn't really very me. Um, so I think it came as an enormous relief to, to all of us when um, an opportunity came up as part of then the integration work. They were looking at the footprint of the organisation. So there were some locations that were slated for closure and I was asked to go and run Croydon Claims, which we knew was going to be closed, but the people there didn't know that. So I was asked to go on to Cobham for nine months or so. Um, so that that was then my next job was back very much frontline operations. Um, and again, that was a great job for me because it was the first time I'd managed managers. And I realised again, that was actually a new and different skill set. Um, but it was only 80 odd people and we we're all in one location. So it was still quite easy to get around and talk to people and, and really understand what was going on. So it was a really nice stepping stone. But yes, yeah, so that was my first head of job was, was Croydon Claims. And then I had to tell them all that we were closing the branch and that everybody was going to be made redundant. What was that like? That was a horrible day for everybody. But I kept telling myself it was far worse for them than it was for me. Yeah. And, um, and I just needed to suck it up and get on with it and do the best job I could for the, for the people there. So then there were several months of trying to keep morale going, keep the operation running, keep everybody buoyant, including me, um, as, as we started to run down and get ready to ship the work out and, and get ready for the last day. So a lot of my focus then was on helping people get jobs because a lot of people had worked there kind of 25 years. It never worked anywhere else. That kind of real. And they had a great skills, really great skills for that terror of I'll not find another job. So I managed to get hold of the um, the guy who ran that direct line at the time. I had a massive office in Croydon just over the road from us. So I managed to get hold of him and said, look, we're putting a lot of really experienced claims people on the market. So a bunch of them went to direct line. And then I went down the high street in Croydon. And there was the usual kind of Reed, Adeco, all of those guys. And they came in the office one day a week each. Uh, I put a meeting room aside for them so people could go in and interview so by the time we'd, uh, by the time the office was closing, pretty much everybody who wanted one had another job already to go to. I was happy with the way that 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 all ended up. Yeah, yeah, certainly sounds uh, sounds uh, like it, it was uh, it was a decent ending in the end. So with regards to kind of, so what, what was the first kind of what you'd class as your first big job? I'm sure they were all big at the time, but what what was the first kind of transition into what what was a kind of a, a, a heavy leadership role? Was that out of Eva? 
Yes, it was. So, so I, I, I went on to there to, to Leeds. I ran a, a contact centre in back office in Leeds. And whilst I was there, um, again, I had a, a call from my boss to say um, the central change team is re-looking at what they do. There, there was a view that we weren't getting enough value from our change spend, a, a very familiar story. <laughs> and, and they were doing, they just kicked off a really big program to look at that, how that could be improved. And there was a view that it would be useful to have perhaps somebody with a more operational mindset go in and, and do some work with that group. That, that was then my next step back into the formal change space was to look at the practices across across the central change team for Aviva and figure out, okay, what could we, what's working well um, and what's working less well and what do we need to do differently? And in terms then of kind of stakeholder management and really understanding, because I, I was an outsider from their perspective, I'd, I'd done a few projects, but I wasn't a change professional. And there I was suggesting that we change the way we went about doing things. And so that was probably the first time I'd, I'd had to go through that kind of, okay, we need to fundamentally change what we do here um, and take a bunch of people with me. But again, that was a brilliant learning experience from my perspective, just looking at how we did change, having the time and the headspace to step back and look at, we do this and this is the outcome. Um, and then working with a lot of others to figure out, okay, what could we do differently? Well, what did you, I mean, I, I'm, I, I'll definitely ask you some more about this later on, but the, 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 when you say it's a, a big learning uh, experience, I, I guess there's the obvious stuff about uh, uh, around um, kind of moving into a new role with people who you had to win hearts and minds or that stuff. But what what did you what did you find is the kind of the biggest hurdle and the biggest kind of learning experience of of that kind of jump? Because it, it sounds like it was quite a big jump, not in regard in, in regards to the level of role, but also the, the the kind of type of position and type of people you're working with. Yeah, I, I think some of the hardest stuff was the different assumptive models. And it's, you don't, until you start asking people, you don't know what questions to ask necessarily to, okay. to get right, because you're both coming from very different views of the world. Um, and it was things like, it came as an enormous re- revelation to me. I sat down with one of our project managers, really senior guy, been running projects for a long time, very successful. And he was putting a new policy administration system into our direct business. So I was chatting to him about it. Oh, how, do, do you know such a body? How long have you been spending in? Because I, my assumption was he'd been spending quite a lot of time in the direct business talking to people who would be using the policy administration system. Um, and his assumption was that was a complete waste of time. He was a project manager. His job was to deliver the technology. It wasn't to manage the change and help re- really understand what the technology needed to do and help manage the stakeholder environment to make sure the technology was adopted. It came as a really big surprise to me, but it took me longer than it ought to have to have figured out that was what was going on, <laughs> just because of a very different assumptive view of the world. So you, you so my right thinking, you, you assumed that he was working quite closely with the business yeah. and understood exactly what he was delivering and what what the benefits were for that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and 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 actually, he was just going from A to B, delivering technology no matter what. My my job is just put this tech in. They have to use it. It's a policy administration system. Well, yeah, they do. But they could be excited about using it and it could solve some of the problems that they've got. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> or you could put in a system that may or may not be fit for purpose. And how do you know until you've been and sat down with them and really understand what they need a policy administration for and what it does um, and the impact. And I think the extent of the impact it has on the lives of our colleagues and our customers is sometimes not really understood by the people who are putting the technology in. Yeah. yeah. Like that, that's so critical to everyday operations. 
after so many of those projects fail, don't they? Or, 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 or fail, maybe not the right word, but certainly don't deliver the benefits that, that, that or the full suite of benefits that they're expected to. And, that, and that's obviously, a, I assume, a reason why I have not not worked there myself. But but from an external perspective, it seems quite obvious. But I can imagine it's uh, it's probably not as uh, is, is commonplace. Maybe more so now. But so so that that so that was the first big role. How did that go? And 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 what did that lead to? So that went well. We made a, a bunch of changes. And then, that, that whilst I was still in the Central Change team, I was then asked. My former colleagues in claims had been looking at a transformation program, um, so I was asked to step in and lead that. And that was an excellent chance to put all I'd learned about kind of ch- change change practices into practice and put my money where my mouth was. Um, and again, that was the first time then I'd ever run a, a proper program and been responsible for something big, unwieldy, and amorphous looking at how we changed our, our, our claims. We looked at our operating model. It was the first time, again, I'd really sat down and thought about, well, what is our operating model and how does it work for us? And I had the opportunity to work with some consultants in terms of then designing a new operating model. I really enjoyed that. Um, again, looking at our processes. Um, we did some work with IBM at the time, and it was just when the notion of lean process design and those sorts of things were starting to, to filter into insurance. And again, for me, that was quite game-changing, really thinking about, okay, what is the customer trying to achieve here? And and what is the quickest way for that customer to do that rather than very internally focused? How do we move this widget from here to here? Which was what kind of my view of process design had been before because that, that was the way we thought about the world. It was like, okay, this is really different and really, really exciting because it's, it, it, that outside-in view of the world leads you to some really different places. And the failure demand and buddy demand and all of that good stuff started to come out. It was great. Yeah, oh, great. So, so obviously you spent a long time. I think you actually did. You go to the to the US with Aviva yeah. in the end as well. Is that how, like, kind of the last role from 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 that memory? That was my last role there. Yeah, and that was again that was that was kind of happenstance. Um, I got approached uh, to say, would I be willing to go out and meet the team because Aviva had bought a life and annuity business out there. So I, I went and met her team and uh, I, I went initially to do six months consulting for them. And essentially what I discovered was it was an organization incredibly successful, had grown really, really quickly through, through M&A. So it was 17 tiny different insurance companies that had been glued together, very sales-led, product-led, sales-led. Nobody had ever really spent much time looking at the operation side of things. So subsequently, <laughs> there were 17 different back offices all pretty much running legacy practices. Um, the IT estate was horrendous. So the, the, the operation was run by people, again, who'd come from the legacy organizations. And running a group of 200 people is really different then to being in a, a much larger organization. And so kind of this, the integration and the scaling just hadn't happened. Um, so I then spent, so yeah, um, the, the thick end of five years out in Des Moines, Iowa, working with working in the U.S., integrating that organization um, and improving the service offering and and the morale of the teams. It was great. And I worked really, really closely with a CTO who became a personal friend. We're still in touch because trying to figure out what to do with the legacy landscape we had was challenging, let's say. Yeah. What was that? What was that like then? Because uh, again, uh, kind of, I'm always interested in kind of getting into kind of the challenges and the 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 the, the things that you had to get over to get to where you you're at now. That 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 kind of. How did you find moving over to the US? And uh, was were there a lot of differences in, in regards to kind of way they do business? Obviously, the mechanics of insurance slightly different, but 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 I, I mean more from a kind of people perspective. 
Yeah, so culturally really, really different. Very paternalist, which surprised me because, again, I didn't necessarily associate that with with America, the America of kind of the the films particularly, Um, but a really paternalist organization, very, very conservative. And being the Midwest, uh, very much rooted in the church and in family values. And I found that quite difficult to kind of grapple with uh, the the cultural the cultural dissonance. Sometimes was was bigger than I expected, certainly. But and that was part of the challenge of again learning how to make change happen there is being accepted by that culture enough. Because I never believe you can change culture from the outside. You have to you have to be part of the inside to 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 drive the change you needed. So becoming enough of part of the furniture that I could get the cultural change through that I wanted and get people kind of challenging the status quo, thinking about what's the right thing for this customer and feeling happy to put their hand up and say, hey, I think we should maybe do this differently. And I've got some ideas rather than waiting for their manager to tell them what to do. Um, but we got there. I bought a teapot for the first time in my life. I'm not a tea drinker. I can't stand the stuff. So when I did like focus groups at the front line, I'd make, make proper tea because they were really interested in tea and, and I'd get a chip in kind of chocolate hobnobs. Um, and yeah, it's great. These poor people sat there with this tea and I was like, by the way, I don't like it. So give me the tea and the Feel free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's brilliant. I've got. Uh, I'd love to. Have, I'd love to have seen that. But I, I know what you mean. I, I think that's a, there's an interesting point there because uh, get, getting people talking and uh, just finding some common ground or an interest that breaking the breaking the, the the kind of barrier of making people comfortable and stuff like that. I think is there's there's something big in that. And it's definitely a common theme actually for for advice given to people throughout this podcast is is certainly along those lines. Um, that, then it comes to get to the point where you, you're moving on from Aviva. I think, uh, according to LinkedIn, we're, we're 15 years deep by this point. So what that that must have been quite a hard move or, or at least a big decision. You mean, I, I, know it's a, I think it's a common theme with people at work at Aviva. You, you, you've done seven or eight different jobs in that period. But so what, what, what was the catalyst to make you move on from there? And, 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 and this is kind of where I think your career kind of moved much more into C-level positions and kind of some kind of overarching leadership positions. So what, what talk us, talk us through a little bit about how that happened and what it looked like. And so I decided I'd had enough of being in, in, in Iowa and we came home. And at that point, yeah, I was speaking to, to Aviva about potential options in the UK. There was nothing that really grabbed me. So kind of had a very amicable parting of the ways. And I went off and did some traveling, uh, traveling for a little while, decided to indulge my inner millennial. It was great. And then um, I had a very brief foray into setting up a web business um, and discovered, like many before me, that A, it's really, really difficult to make money out of free content. Um, and B, as an extrovert thinker, sitting by myself at home all day wasn't conducive to, to a great work, workplace for me. So yes, yeah, so I ended up, um, I was supposed to look for a new role and I wound up at a company called William Russell the privately held international health insurer um, and the customer base in the Middle East and the Far East. And uh, the uh, the founders still run it. They'd had it 20 years, built an incredibly successful business, um, but they wanted to grow it. And so it was working with them to figure out how and where and all the rest of it. Um, they'd originally built the business on the basis of corporate relocation. So people going to, say, Hong Kong on a corporate relocation and having their healthcare paid for by their employer. That market was starting to shrink, partly because there was less of that sort of activity and partly because kind of corporate relocation purse strings were being a bit tightened. And this was kind of a really, really good quality health insurance, so it's expensive. Um, However, there was a new market growing in terms of high net worth, local nationals in a lot of these countries 
who were happy to be treated locally for really minor illnesses, but they wanted cover so that if they got seriously ill, they could go elsewhere for treatment. The, the really fun thing about that was we needed to be onshore with a regulated product in order to sell to those people. So it was figuring out how to go about doing that and finding the right partners to go onshore with and then having a regulated product there and all the, all the processes and everything else that needed to sit around there. So, so that's what I've, I spent a lot of my time doing at, at William Russell. And uh, again, it was, a, it was an amazing opportunity because it was a small company. I had teams all over the place reporting just straight to me. So a team in Dubai, a team in Hong Kong, for example. I, I traveled a lot to, to make these particular arrangements work, work properly or set them up. And then the other good thing about being in a really small organization is I'll never forget being on the phone to a lo- very large Indonesian insurance carrier um, sorting out how the financials could work with a possible partnership arrangement and um, to then get off the phone and there's somebody stood there saying, Louise, the dishwasher's broken. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, the good thing about having been around technology for a while, you just I went downstairs, turned it off and turned it on again and lo and behold, the dishwasher was fixed. But that, that, it was a really fun place, partly because of that variety in every day. You never quite knew what every day was going to be. Yeah, yeah, a bit different from Aviva. Um, so I know, I know you did that for a few years. So, and, and then that kind of brings us to the, to the, the more, the, the, the Hiscox role, which obviously you've been doing more recently. So how, how did that, how did that happen? What, what was the, what was the kind of transition uh, like from moving back to a bigger organisation? How did that come about? So I, I left William Russell, uh, again, had a, a, a great time there. The, the owners had decided that kind of the, 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 the growth period needed to come to an end for a little while and consolidate what they got. I'd built a really great team. And so I decided I wanted to go off and do something else. I'd been introduced to, to Hiscox. I met the CEO um, there and the, the CEO there and was initially brought in on an interim contract to look at IT and change. Again, very familiar story. Um, insufficient value being got out of the change stand and issues with IT. While I went through the recruitment process for the COO job and with amazing timing, I joined in December 2019. And so all the plans I had in place got completely derailed because the, the thing I then ended up doing was getting the thick end of a thousand people um, working from home successfully. And like every other organization that went through it, it's astounding what you can do when you really, really have to. <laughs> yeah. So was that your role, was that your role as, in, in the kind of interim change role or did you transition to the COO role before that? It, it, it was, uh, uh, it was, I was formerly still interim change director, but it was one of those, this plainly is the most important thing that can happen. Yeah. And I've probably got the most relevant skill set to, to lead it. So it, it, it was a very easy decision to, to just crack on with it. Um, but one of the things I love about Hiscox is uh, I didn't know my way around the organization at all at the time. Still, I was very much learning. We we're all working from our kitchen tables. Um, so I was there literally on, on, on structure charts trying to find the right people to talk to, um, ringing up strangers and saying, hi, I'm Louise, and <laughs> I think you might be able to help me with this problem. And not one person ever told me to, to kind of go away, e- even politely. Um, even when it wasn't there, they would then work with me to try and figure out, well, who, who is the right person? Um, I think that's a great part of the Hiscox culture. There's a, there's a real care and a real desire to, to, to do things right. 
Yeah, yeah. You I mean I, 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 as I said, as you know, we've obviously worked together before. I've certainly found that with the the business. Um, um so talk, talk. I mean, obviously, look, I, I think there's some well documented challenges that Hiscox had over the over the last uh, last few years. So, and and you would have been in the it, it very much in the midst of uh, of a lot of that. So, so talk us through about what what that's been like over the last few few years or so. What what the big thick ticket things you've been you've been doing and and kind of where that's kind of led you to uh, in, in more recently. Um, so yes, we we, we had uh, some excitement during COVID. Uh, as we came out of the back of that, I think the, the real key area for me has been on improving the broker and the customer experience. Um, and again, the insurance price, it's no secret. Hiscox has had some service issues for a number of years. So it's been trying to diagnose, well, what's been at the root cause of those? And what do we need to do differently in order to properly resolve them? Um, so there's been an enormous amount of work been going on um, for the for the last several years looking at our processes, building a continuous improvement culture, again, based on kind of lean and systems thinking, looking at what can we digitize? So setting up a digital trading function, um, creating a proper strategy and delivering against that strategy, particularly in the broker space, giving our brokers some of the tools they want to, to trade with us electronically, looking at process automation. How can we automate our processes once we fix them? How then do we go and automate them, putting in proper workflow tools, uh, and then looking more broadly at the technology landscape, as with everywhere, very complex landscape. And I think one of the things that became very clear is the technology decisions we have been making in terms of investment hadn't necessarily been in the context of a very clear and well-articulated technology strategy. So working with my technology colleagues to say, okay, that, that needs to change. So we spent a lot of time creating a technology strategy, a technology blueprint, and that's been super helpful in terms of then as we've looked to what's the investment roadmap over the next three to five years, it's been in the context of something that we can, that we understand the whole and we understand where it is that we're trying to get to rather than trying to point solve, which is where we've been before. So again, in terms of really thinking about how can we drive more value from our change spend, we've, we've done a bunch of stuff around change methodologies and, and all the rest of it. And I think that, that will all help. But fundamentally, it's really understanding what is our technology strategy and therefore what key pieces of technology do we need to invest in? Well, I'm always interested because obviously for most of the people I interview on this podcast, although I interviewed with plenty of change people as well as kind of exclusively CTOs, for example, um, you, you obviously, uh, even through talking through that that kind of career journey, as it, as it evolved, technology kind of became more and more a, a, a key component of, of what you uh, you were doing and I, and I know it's obviously a key component um, of what you've been doing most recently so how how have you found that because obviously you don't come from a, a, a technology background um, per se but having worked quite closely with technology people you mean where would you kind of position yourself now on that kind of uh, that barometer of kind of tech person non-tech person and, and how have you kind of found the that, that lead in those types of people in big projects around that kind of space with, without being a, a, a techie yourself? I, I, I know enough, so very things for some people say I know enough to be dangerous. I, I, I think I'm an informed consumer. I know enough about the landscape. I, I think some of it's about knowing what questions to ask your techie colleagues, um, and I'm good at translating. So the kind of the complexity and the constraints around, particularly in, in, in all insurance companies, the legacy landscape is always difficult, it's always constrained. And having been working around that for a really long time and understanding then the outcomes that that has from an operational perspective, um, I think that helps in terms of then really understanding some of the technology constraints 
um, and being able to help my technology colleagues particularly articulate those in a way that then can be better understood by the rest of the business. And I think sometimes things like tech debt and all the rest of it are underappreciated and underinvested in, partly because the people who really understand it are not necessarily that great at explaining to the rest of the exec why it is and what they'll get out of it if we actually spend the money on it. Because sometimes it's really dull, isn't it? We need to spend some money on this. And we and everybody says, yeah, 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 let's do it next year because there's this really cool, funky thing I want over here that I can see all the benefits for. Um, but what we don't get is that unless we address this problem now, in three years' time, it's really going to bite us on the backside. And again, I see my role a lot as, as, as working with my, my much more technologically able colleagues to really start to pick into that and understand that so again, we can come with a properly worked through strategy that's couched in language that everybody can understand. Because I think I think actually uh, that's really interesting. So I think there's the, the overarching thing that I take from your career is variety. Like there, there, there's a, there's a, there's a real variety, and and with that naturally will become a, a, a fairly deep knowledge in various areas, whether it be claims or risk and compliance and insurance in general as, as, as the business work. Do you think in the roles that you've played, um, because I, I think there is, there is definitely a, 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 a kind of a, a growing theme that, that, there are, that then people need to understand technology more, more so, more so. And I, I could understand where that comes from. But do you think actually in the roles that you've played, n- not being an SME in technology and understanding the business, but, but, but knowing enough is, is actually been a benefit because... Um, if you were a kind of techie SME, you could end up like that guy who was delivering the policy admin system uh, and, and just worry about the technology. Yeah, and I think it is genuinely sometimes really helpful because I don't get lost in the weeds because I don't know enough to get lost in the weeds of the technology. I don't see the complexity I, because I have to simplify it to my, for myself in order to properly understand the issues. I think it really helps then in terms of getting to what is the nub of the issue we're trying to solve and why. Um, without then getting kind of going round and round the rabbit hole where I'd see some of my, as I say, really smart, very, very, very capable people that I think as soon as something is within your area of expertise, sometimes it is difficult to simplify um, because you see the whole of it. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a, yeah, that's, a, that's a really good point. I, I, I definitely kind of resonate with that. Um, so, so I guess moving on from the, the specific career, then. So, uh, obviously, you've uh, you've recently finished up at at Hiscott. It's taken some time out now. What what do you see? Um, look, looking at the industry as a whole, and 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 certainly having been through a lot of the challenges that you've been through over the last few years, what 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 do you see as the kind of the the big things that that insurance businesses are experiencing right now, and are going to be kind of top of the agenda in your opinion over the next few years or so so I'll, I'll say the obvious one first generative ai uh, very very topical particularly with the conference at bletchley park at the moment and i think uh, i think digitization more generally insurers have to digitize they need to do so from a cost perspective they need to do more and more expectations are growing everywhere i think that's that, that's critical and i think the opportunities that something like generative ai give us are huge. You can see a plethora of use cases, some of which is getting rid of administrative burden in terms of just moving information from one place to another. But when you look at pricing, you look at claims handling, all of these things, you can see how a tool like that could be completely game-changing. But I think the difficulty is in understanding what technology to invest in, when and how. And particularly for insurers, again, going back to the legacy problem, I don't think there'll be a single carrier that's really confident about the integrity of its data. Especially when you look at all the risks around a tool like AI. Again, as an industry, we absolutely have to be confident that we can implement it responsibly. 
Um, unless we understand the inputs, given then that potentially there's a bit of a black box around it before we get the outputs, for me, that, that's, that's then fraught with risk. You have to be really confident in the integrity and conformity of your data and the inputs that you're putting into these tools before then you start to use them because or else some of the negative consequences, the chances of that for me are, are, are grown exponentially. So I, th I think that's a massive challenge around how to digitize, how to use tools like generative AI, whether to go first, whether to wait, yeah, the, the whole competitive landscape, will we become irrelevant unless we do this now? Um, and if so, how much are we going to have to spend on it? And when will we see the return? What will the return look like? And can we do it responsibly? Do we feel confident about doing it? And I think that's going to be an issue for, for the next several years as we work through that, and not only as an industry, but as a society. I think the um, I think it's obviously kind of it's a, it's a common theme in insurance that they're that they're generally quite slow to react and risk averse, etc. Um, for for to, to especially for technology and modernisation on the whole. Where where do you think the industry, having been in a, a, a carrier for the last few years and most of your career, where do you think the the industry is at from a mindset perspective at the moment in in regards to kind of getting their head wrapped around the fact that. The, the 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 kind of pace of modernization is 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 just ever increasing and unless kind of for me unless the the pace of 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 kind of willingness to go with that increases that you, you're just going to you, you're by definition getting left further behind so i think the mindset's there and i think often the mindset has i think there's a reputation for conservatism some of which is probably correct and some of which i think is a little unfair because i think again from the outside it's really difficult to understand just how difficult it is in, in particularly in the large carriers, you think they've got mainframes, we're going to say, go, go back to this. Because, because insurers were such early and enthusiastic adopters of technology over the years, the technology landscape has just got more and more and more complicated in all of these organizations. So trying to do something new has never been in the construct of a kind of a greenfield site. It's always been on top of an existing incredibly complex IT architecture that has to be catered for. So I, I, there probably is some conservatism in there, but some of it is just about the difficulty in executing and executing well, I think is misunderstood um, and potentially underplayed in that narrative. And certainly when I speak to people across the industry now, I you know, sometimes speak to other COOs, we are all crystal clear we have to digitize, kind of externally give our, our consumers, our broker partners, um, greater tools, that that's, that's what they want. And internally we need to automate our processes and we can see... We can see the benefits of, of various bits of new technology and something like AI. But again, we need to work with our technology partners to figure out what does that actually mean for us. And I think some of it, again, is looking at multi-year investment cases, because some of it is we might need to spend three years sorting our data out before we can do any of the cool stuff and reap any of the benefits. And sometimes that's a harder message to sell, I think. And we can build this in 18 months and then you'll get all this really, this, this stream of benefits starting to come through from there. And I, th I think that's the balancing act we're all treading at the moment. Yeah, that long-term view is huge, is it? Like just kind of having a, 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 and realising that there's multiple bits to stick together. I, I, I agree with you as well. Like I think uh, the insurance industry does get a bit of a bad rep when, uh, when the, the, it's, it's, it's not quite as simple as, uh, as, a, as a kind of blanket statement that we're going to do, do X and Y. Um, so I, I, I wanted to get a little bit more into uh, the, the, the kind of diversity and uh, like the last episode I did, uh, last series I did of this podcast was all about uh, women in technology. We spoke about it a lot with the guests, but having been with three or four different um, organizations now and, 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 and hopefully seen the, the um, 
the industry evolve uh, uh, at least a little bit. Um, what's your kind of perception it's like now? What, what has it been like being a kind of woman in, in a, f- a fairly heavily male-dominated uh, world? And, and have there been any kind of major pitfalls that you've experienced, uh, etc.? It's, it's got a lot better. Although I have to say, I was at a, a Bieber in February with a, a colleague of mine who's come from outside the industry, and her initial impression was, I have never seen so many men in blue suits before in one place in my life. Bit of a sobering reflection. Because, ah, oh, this is this is fine. This is way better than it used to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we we have come a long way. I think for me, the, the the trick now is getting more diversity of thought. I think even if you've got a better gender balance, and we're and we're getting there, we're still seeing far too many women drop out in the early runs of their leadership career. Um, particularly if they're going off to have a family and they spend some time out of the workplace and then they have caring responsibilities at home. Um, and I think some of it is about, I've been talking to some of my colleagues about how can we make sure, even if it's something as simple as a networking event, rather than necessarily having it at 6.30, if they need to be back to do the, the, the nursery run, maybe we could do something at lunchtime. Um, so I think some of it is just being a bit more mindful of, of that. For me, I think there, there is a lack of diversity of experience and diversity of thought. Again, when I sit down with some of my colleagues, even if there happens to be a reasonable blend of gender, ethnicity, all, all of these good things around the table, whilst they sometimes bring difference of experience, often when you look at our, our career trajectories, they've been quite similar. And I think industry does need to make itself more attractive to young people. Um, again, the number of people I've spoken to who've got into to insurance by accident um, is we want young people to come and join us. We want more diversity of experience. We need more diversity of thought. And given that we need to digitize, we should really be having digital natives really help us lead that journey. And again, I think this is moving away perhaps from the more hierarchical, very traditional insurance company, conservative hierarchical structures into more team-based working, kind of autonomous teams with decision-making ability and flatter structures. So people feel that they're contributing more um, and they can see the outputs of what they're doing. And I think that for me is a journey that the industry probably needs to go on. Similar question to what, to, to what I asked about the the AI stuff. Again, from a mindset perspective, because I, 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 I wholeheartedly agree with everything you said, uh, seeing it from the other side of the fence, I think insurance has, uh, and I talk about it quite a lot in these podcasts, uh, that, that has a real issue with getting their head around the fact that they don't necessarily need someone with, with bags of insurance experience to do to jobs that are, are broadly the same in any any industry. And, and, and equally, I'll try, often trying to change the way you do things to do stuff differently. Uh, it, it makes sense maybe hire someone from a different background. But, but do you think there, uh, certainly in, in the kind of leadership roles that you've had, do you think there is an understanding of that and a willingness to, to want to do it? Because I think the, the balance of that is always, we need to get stuff done kind of here and now, and therefore it's a burn, It's always a burning pro- problem. So therefore you need someone who can hit the ground running. And that often is someone who's probably been doing the job before. So it's, it's, it's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. And I think that is exactly the tension. I think there is an understanding and I think there is a desire to, to have teams that better better reflect our customer bases um, and an understanding that we don't necessarily need somebody with 20 years industry experience to come in and do this. But you're right, there's always a burning imperative so that it feels safe to go and hire somebody who knows all the lingo. You know that onboarding them is going to be a lot easier and a lot faster. And again, I think it's making sure we think about potentially different things at different layers in the organization as well. So we get more people coming in at different layers who who come from different backgrounds and who can bring new thinking in and then getting them to stay. 
And again, I think the way the media sometimes portray the industry as venal and hiding behind the small print and they don't want to pay claims, I think this is a massive disservice. And that doesn't help when you're going out trying to recruit kind of young people particularly. Um, and I think we need to do more as an industry about explaining our role in society that, yeah, a lot of stuff we take for granted wouldn't exist. You wouldn't be able to get on an aeroplane without insurance. And then the societal good that we, we, we do as a, as a risk transfer mechanism, I think we, that, that's something we really need to look at as part of our kind of overall ESG thinking. Yeah, I, I think that, that, you mean, I, I actually wrote a post uh, a, a couple of days ago, actually, about that. Uh, certainly something I, I, I spoke about with Graham, who, who's the who's on the podcast, Graham Howard, who's on the podcast uh, recently. I, I think that the perception of insurance is massively unfair. You mean, I'm, I'm sure there's some validity in what, why that's gone gone that way. Um, and, and normally it's that kind of 1% of uh, of bad rep that gets gets pumped out in the news that sells papers. But but the good it does for for the for the world in in ninety nine percent of cases is kind of unparalleled. Really, I mean, in 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 your in, in in the time of need, whether it be a car accident or medical emergency or whatever. You mean I, I'm I'm certainly not expecting you to solve this problem, uh, Louise. But what, what what do you think? Why do you think that is? Do you think that is is it just that it's uh it, it's kind of we the sector don't really deal with the, with those kind of negative things particularly well. I, I, I mean, it's hard to tell from an external perspective. It'd be good to understand what the feeling is from in 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 the industry. I, I think your point about what sells newspapers is a good one. So if you look in the financial thing, yeah, Moneybox on Radio 4, all the papers, some kind of terrible story where a customer has not been well dealt with is a great deal more compelling than a lot of people had the, yeah, the recent storm that we have going on right now outside. All the insurers I've ever worked for will want desperately to help all those customers as quickly as possible and to give them a good experience. That's what they will want to do. Um, and sometimes that doesn't happen just because things do go wrong. But there are very few who deliberately go about trying not to do the right thing for their customers. That really is a tiny, tiny number. But yeah, insure, insurer pays out happy customers. It's not really a story. And for whatever reason, we've been not as perhaps good as we could have been as an industry at telling some of those stories, but they don't get in the newspapers, they don't get on social media. And I think changing that narrative has, has proved very challenging, um, but it's something we need to focus on, I think. It, it is a real strange because I, I, I have to admit, I, 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 having worked in, this, in the industry for, for 10, 15 years or so, I, I still even have that, that kind of ingrained belief that insurance companies don't want to pay out. And yet I've never had that experience with any insurance company that I've ever dealt with. They've always been, I think on 90% of cases, they've always been good, especially things like health insurance and stuff like that, who, who, are, who are normally brilliant. But uh, it, it's weird, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a strange thing that we've we've obviously been, we, we obviously get kind of fed into us that that, that, is, a, that is a problem. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one to, to kind of overcome. It's certainly not going to take five minutes, but I think you're right. I, I think young people naturally will, will only want to come into the industry and especially with the the way young people are now more often than not wanting to do stuff that, that provides some good, that there has to be an angle in selling insurance along that, that route because that's exactly what the industry is doing. Um, so I, I, I guess we, we, we're coming to kind of close to the end now, but I, I, I always like to get, um, and there's definitely been some you've all given already, but for, from an advice perspective, lots of the people that listen to the podcast are, are kind of budding COOs or uh, may, may even be starting out in that kind of the early phases of, of what you did. Um, what, what, what are the kind of two or three killer bits of advice you would, you would give or, or, or even stuff that you'd like to pass on that you were given? 
I think one piece of advice that for certainly people coming new into the industry now is develop some skills that cannot be replaced by AI. Uh, so <laughs> I genuinely think, uh, and leadership skills and people skills, I think are really important. I, I can't see a universe in which they being able to deal well with people becomes obsolete. I think the other thing is if you get offered an opportunity, even if you're not 100% sure you can do it, take it. And particularly to, to, to young women who may be listening to this, um, the number of young women, there may be 10 things on a job description. They might nail mine and be brilliant at them, but there's one that maybe they're less strong on. And it's like, you know what, that's okay, that's enough. Um, just have the courage of your convictions and go and do it. And I think a piece of advice I was given, the best piece of advice I was given is uh, you always regret what you don't do um, rather than what you do do. And I think certainly for me, that's been massively true. So I would advise anybody the same is, is to take advantage of opportunities when they come up, even if the timing's not potentially perfect or this, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's go with it. And that variety thing, I think you mentioned as well. Like, would you advise, like, because like, you, you may not necessarily identify, but it, to me, it, it seems like on this podcast that the, the people, the, the vast majority of people have done a whole load of variety. Like they, they've tried different things and that's to, to get into that kind of ultimate sea level role that not everybody wants, but, but a lot of people aspire to get to. Ha, ha, being an absolute expert in one thing might not necessarily be beneficial. It, 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 it seems to me that, 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 like I said before, the overarching thing about your career is that you've, you, even though you've been in only a few companies, you, the, the amount of different roles that you've played in those, those businesses and therefore people you've got to know, relationships you've built, et cetera, seem to be huge. And that seems to be a common theme. No, absolutely. Sideways moves. Again, I think sometimes people are a bit reluctant to look at sideways moves. But for me, they've been brilliant because every time I've moved, I've really, there's so much learning opportunity. And I, and I think that's, that, that's the thing. And particularly in larger organisations where it is quite easy to move around sideways. Those opportunities do come up and I would, I would certainly advise people to take them. Great. Right. So we'll move on to the, the, the final part of the, of the podcast. Um, um, as always, I, I've, uh, I've got some kind of standard questions that I was asked and then uh, some quick fire rounds to find out a little bit more about you personally. Um, but the first one is, what, what is it you love about the insurance space? I love it. It's really interesting. I can never understand why people think insurance is boring. I think the, the, the combination of people and technology, how we bring them together to solve customer problems is fascinating so that, that that's what i love about the industry amazing I, I i know the answer to this one already but what what is the best thing about being behind your desk right now which i know actually isn't you're not actually behind the desk right now so um but but what's the best thing about being you right now louise so yeah i'm behind the desk in my home office and um on, on our different screen i've got a bunch of stuff about what we're doing in istanbul at our next week <laughs> what's top of the list the, the usual things, uh, Topeki Palace and, and uh, mosques, museums, that sort of thing. So it's good. Amazing. Amazing. Right. So then I've got some quick fire questions that uh, just for a bit of fun. The first one is, what is the one piece of technology you couldn't live without? I suspect all your guests have said this, my phone. It's definitely a, yeah. it's definitely a favourite. It is it, seeming inconceivable that they're not. We, we haven't had them for that long. Yeah. <laughs> the idea of going without it now makes me feel a bit jittery. Would you, uh, and you I mean, obviously you're, you're in, uh, you've just come out of kind of a few years of, of probably a fairly hectic lifestyle and now you've got to go have a couple of months off. Um, what, will you, uh, what's that been like? Like the phone's probably not ringing anywhere near as much as it, it, it was certainly from a work perspective as it was kind of this time last week. So what's that been like when you're not kind of got used to it yet? 
I haven't quite got used to it yet. I'm still finding myself frantically checking to make sure I haven't missed anything. (laughs) I'm sure I'll get to grips with it quite quickly. Yeah, yeah, great. The second one is, which brand or company do you really admire and why? I'm going to go with Toyota. Uh, Because of the Toyota way, for me, they kind of epitomize operational excellence. Um, And certainly if I were to ever go off on some sort of exciting expedition by land, I'd want to do it in a Toyota Land Cruiser because I would believe it wouldn't break down. (laughs) Yeah, amazing. Good. Favourite business-related book? Freedom from Command and Control by John Seddon. Yeah, work on the system, not on the people. The the people aren't the problem. (laughs) If you give them the right direction and the right tools, they will deliver the right thing, but make the system work for them, not the other way around. Um, and it really made me rethink, again, how, how I thought about some of the problems I have. And I go back to it regularly. If I'm ever stuck in a circle, I'll dip in. And sometimes it helps and sometimes it doesn't. Cool. Amazing. And that's definitely, I'm building up a really good list of books to, uh, to read there, so, from doing this podcast. Um, so uh, next one is favourite film or TV series? And uh, I'm, I'm not a massive film goer, but my favourite TV programme is The Simpsons. I've watched it for years. Really? Escapism, it's brilliant. It always makes me laugh. Amazing. Yeah. Very cool. I haven't watched that Simpsons for so long. I used to watch it loads when I was younger. Um, the uh, next one, if you weren't a tech leader, what would you have been? I would like to have been a journalist. I, I really oh. like understanding the why of stuff, which is partly what drew me to my original economics degree and probably is what kept me in insurance because there's always lots of whys to answer. So I really enjoyed that. And in my brief foray into web publishing, I enjoyed the creative side of writing and that sense of trying to impart kind of ideas to other people in a way that they, they will understand. So that's that's probably where I would have liked to have ended up. Amazing. I'm always That's always my favourite question I ask people, that one. Um, the last one is, uh, who is your number one role model or person you admire? Oh, I, I think the, the, the person I admire most uh, and has been for a while is Gina Miller. And people are probably most familiar with her for the legal challenges she made to Brexit and then to the government for proroguing parliament. Right. And, and what I admire about her is she's a woman, obviously, of great principle and integrity. And she's been willing to stand behind her conviction. I mean, she's had death threats. She's had so much abuse. Um, so she's put kind of her emotional and her financial um, self in front of her beliefs. And, and I just like the fact that she's, she's been so steadfast in, in what she believes in. Yeah, amazing. Right. Well, great way to finish. Um, look, th- th- first of all, thank you so much for, for your time. I, I know you uh, are, are going off on holiday soon. So look, on the, off the back of this, uh, there, I'm sure there'll be some people that want to reach out. You are available for potentially a new, a new role in the new year. So uh, I'm, I'm sure it won't be long till you find one. But uh, if people want to reach out, are you happy for people to come get in touch with LinkedIn and stuff like that? Please do. That would be great. I'm on LinkedIn, Louise Marling. There aren't that many Marlings. <laughs> perfect well look thank you once again look, I really appreciate your time I know we've been talking about doing this for a while so thank you very much for making the time thanks again Louise and uh, we'll speak soon thank you for having me you take care thanks for listening to this episode of Behind the Desk with me Mark Thomas if you like the episode please subscribe give us a five star rating like and a comment and even better please share with your friends and colleagues If you have any suggestions for future guests or other areas you'd like me to explore, it would be great to hear them. Behind the Desk is powered by Eames Consulting, part of the Eames Group. You can find out more about us at eamesconsulting.com. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to catching up with you again next time.